I think for you, Kaylin, the first time I ever became aware of you was, I think, on the extras section of the Magpul Art of the Rifle DVD. And it, it's interesting because over the years I've gone back, I've still got it. I go back and I look at every now, now and then, but I've realized I've always kind of gravitated to those extras because you almost managed to encapsulate that whole DVD in your little section. <laughs> yeah, that was, um, you know, a brief, a brief history on that. It was kind yeah. of, it was interesting because um, I had re I had just gotten hired at Magpul. Um, I think I, I got hired in March. And then uh, Richard Fitzpatrick, the, the, the original the owner of Magpul, he, he saw the DVD and he said, okay, um, there's really very little discussion in this DVD in its current form with regard to fundamentals of marksmanship and actually teaching people how to shoot a rifle. And it, it was kind of funny because he's, he pulled me into the office on a visit while I was there. And he said, he goes, I want you to do this. Um, da, 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 da. And uh, can you make it happen in like three weeks? And I, and I was like, um, sure. I, I don't, I have no idea what I'm getting myself into. I don't understand the product, the level of production that was going into that. Um, and it was large and it was intimidating. Mm -hmm. And I've never been, that was the first time I'd ever been in front of a camera in that regard before. And it was very, it was intimidating. Um, and, you know, new job working for, the largest, you know, most well-known manufacturer of firearms accessories known to the world. And it was just like, oh my gosh, this is pretty insane. Um, and it, it ended up turning out well. And, and a lot of the things that, um, you know, it's funny, we were just having this conversation not too long ago, you know, the foundations and the fundamentals of marksmanship haven't changed mm. for, for decades and decades. But what has changed is people's ability to interpret those those fundamentals and word them in a way that makes them their own so that they can communicate better to their customers. But it was sort of that real front cusp of online media, instructional videos and stuff that the the general bulk people kind of kind of learnt about. And even talking to uh, Todd about it, um, which must have been a couple of years ago, and I kind of said to him the other thing is is it you say something and now it's captured and everyone refers back to it like 10 years ago. If you said something, even if you've changed the way you're doing it, that's still how you said you did it. Therefore, blah, 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 blah. And it was the same thing you could see in him. He's like, yeah, no, there's, there's stuff there that I, he was not no longer doing. And that happens. It's evolution. It's, yes. it's, um, and, and that's where a lot of people, um, I think get hung up on these things because, you know, you, uh, you apply this to life in general, right? You, you, you do not have to be the same person that you were yesterday, right? Mm. You do not have to be the same person that you were an hour ago. And that's, mm. a, that's personal development. And that's also professional development when it comes to finding a different way to, 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 to describe a process or, or um, coming up with a different methodology of, of teaching something. Um, new methods come into play, new techniques, um, new technology comes into play. And so therefore when new technology comes in, we have to figure out ways to communicate what this new technology is doing for you as the consumer. And you know, that always is, is it's a constant evolution. Mm -hmm. Um, some things stay the same, like some things stay the same with regard to, you know, breathing, you know, we're still breaking shots at the bottom of the breathing cycle. People ask all the time, well, why can't I do it at the top? 
Well, it just doesn't work. There's things that just work and there's things that don't work. And so those are the things that we continue to, to, you know, to, to, to stay defined and, and yeah. focus specifically on that because those are the baselines. It, you could equate, I'm not a golfer, but I do know like some friends of mine that, that, that also golfed competitively. And, and there's a lot of parallels that, that we talk about with regard to that. Um, so it, it's also like flying, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a pilot too. And, and there's like certain fundamentals that, you know, of, of flight that need to be adhered to, or else you're going to fall out of the sky. Like there's nothing that's science. Yeah. But with the advent of things like glass cockpits and, and advanced instrumentation and avionics it makes things way easier for, for pilots, you know, flying instruments and, and, in bad weather and things like that. So the foundations are the same, but the way that we get there is different. Something that's been quite a strong message that you're pushing at the moment is this, this concept of mindfulness behind the rifle. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's, it's quite interesting at the moment because we're seeing, and this is one of those clunky questions I talked to you about because it's got a bit of a concept behind it, but every morning I'm getting up uh, and using, opening up an app called Mindfulness. Right? And it's basically my modern extension. I've done a lot of martial arts in the years and, and a lot of meditation and the woo-woo names of meditation is now mindfulness is a lot more acceptable. And it's been interesting watching you kind of draw these different worlds of that mindfulness and that flow state and that, that point of purpose and everything into shooting. Because I've always felt that, to me anyway, my, my observation was that a lot of rifle shooting was almost pretty close to some of the internal martial arts because we're not physically hitting anything with our bodies, therefore it becomes very much of how we're managing ourselves, these small movements, our breath and everything. So, please. Yeah, yes. It's not quite it's, a question, I'm, it's more a statement. No, I, yeah. Indeed, and I'm glad that you brought that up because we do get that question asked quite a bit. Like, what mm. is this? What, what are mm. you talking about? And um, there are some people that, that I've heard that, you know, bulk at it and, um, in terms of like, ah, it's a bunch of hippie stuff. And it's like, nah, man, every time that you connect yourself to that rifle, you are going into a state of awareness and presence that is meditative, whether you want to admit it or not. And that's, and that's really what it boils down to. And, and mindfulness doesn't just focus on the activity itself. Mindfulness focuses on the, the holistic attitude of the, the person that's doing the activity. And that's not just the activity, right? It's how you carry yourself every day. It's how you present yourself to the world. It's how you present yourself to yourself. And so um, the reason that, that we've kind of done this or, or uh, started to introduce it is I started to draw a lot of parallels based upon my life experiences and over the last few years, I've had some, some really profound experiences. I mean, you know, I've gone to, I've gone to all kinds of places in the world and witnesses, witnessed different things. And I've had opportunities to, to, to do some amazing things. I mean, what really kicked it all off was, um, you know, kind of an awakening, if you will, was uh, my trip to the Himalayas. And, you know, there's, there's something to be said about sharing the sky with, with those mountains. And like, it really, it really it really shifted, it really shifted something inside of my, inside of my head and inside of myself to go, ah, man, there's just something way bigger. There's a way bigger purpose out here than just, than just this, right. Or, 
I mean, you stand in front of those mountains and you witness what you witnessed. You're, you're, you're literally smaller than a grain of sand. You're just a speck of dust. And, and that really gets reinforced when you, when you experience that. And then, you know, um, you know, getting uh, like, as an example, I was learning to skydive was one of those things that like, it really drove it home as well because you're 100% present and focused. Um, you're not thinking about anything else when you're doing that activity or climbing, you know, I'm, I'm by no means an alpinist. I'm an aspiring alpinist. Um, I love to climb. And that's another one of those activities that while you're doing it, you are not thinking about anything else. You're thinking about exactly what it is that you're doing because life itself sometimes rests on those decisions. And and that is the flow state. That is where the magic happens. That's where everything comes together and you can really start thinking clearly and focus clearly. And, and I started to look at this from a shooting perspective and we are, we're in a world right now where everyone wants to be competitive. Everyone wants to be um, the brand ambassador. Everyone wants to be the sponsored shooter. Um, and you got to start looking at it from the standpoint of what's the why? Why? Why are you doing it? Where's that? Where's that drive and motivation and passion coming from? What's the intention behind it? Well, it's been interesting. I'm teaching. I've got two little girls, a four-year-old and a five-year-old, and we're starting to teach them card games. And it's just interesting to see that competitive streak and what it does to a couple of kids who really want to win and don't necessarily understand why they want it, but they want to win and just watching that develop in them as well. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it's interesting. Like I, um, years ago when I was younger, I, I rode motorbikes mm -hmm. uh, on the road and there's that point where you're going very fast down the road where if something mm -hmm. goes pear shaped, um, there's going to be some serious um, repercussions going on and you are right there in that moment. Um, yes. It's that simple. Uh, yeah. And I, and I think as humans, we, we seek that state. We know, most of us know what that state we've experienced at some point. And it's one of those ultimate kind of drugs because it's that clarity and single-mindedness that you kind of get, um, that we are seeking things. And for a lot of people, that becomes um, danger or immediacy. They can get it through that because that hopefully drags you right to the present. Um, and it was something that I kind of found pretty quickly when I got into the the shooting that, yeah, if you're able to do that and pull that in so that it's just you there, your firearm and your target, um, things do go a lot better. Um, and I noticed my, my bad day shootings is normally, shooting is normally because I need to stand up, take five good breaths, shake myself out and get my head back into the game. Exactly. Um, and, and that, and, and that comes with intention and that comes with identifying like, okay, what am I, what am I doing this for? Okay. Am I, am, if you're doing it to have fun and play a game, that's cool. Um, you know, we, we are in a culture and in a society where, um, winning means everything, right. And if you're not winning, um, you're, there's some, this weird disconnection of validation of your skills or, or of yourself, and I just don't view it that way. Like, I think that sometimes that can really be um, your your worst enemy, mm. um, because if if you're so if that's where your sole purpose of drive comes from is to just is to is to do it for yourself. Okay, well then, what do you like? Are you doing it because you wanna you wanna grow yourself personally, or you wanna grow your skills personally, or are you really worried about what everybody else thinks? that's watching you. Cause you, you and I have probably, we've all seen it, right? So a guy misses a shot or a, 
it doesn't matter. A person misses a shot. What's the very first thing that happens? They always, they always, you always verbally berate yourself out loud mm. to make sure that you let everybody know that you either you a meant to have that happen, or b, um, you're you're looking at it from the perspective of, well, oh man, I didn't mean for that to happen, and I'm a dumbass or whatever. And it's just self, it's it's self-deprecating behavior because you're worried about what everybody else thinks. You're worried about your outside appearance to to whoever it is when you're not even close to being in that moment and processing the information that that's being spoken to you through whatever it is, like maybe it's a miss dude, you're supposed to miss that shot. Look at why then, then, then instead of focusing on the negative aspect of it, focus on the teaching points from it. Why did you miss that shot? What was, why did chances are you press the trigger when you knew you shouldn't have, but you did it anyways. So, you know, let's look at that. Let's, let's analyze that process because that's where your growth is going to happen. Well, it's interesting. I think you, you're totally right. So first thing it's that, that internal voice and you express, and then what I, I've sort of shared this story more than once. Then the other thing, which I've observed somebody did is they shot, they missed. And the first thing they did was get the kestrel out and figure out how their solution was wrong in the kestrel. And they were sitting there trying to tweak their ballistic software to make it match what they'd just seen. And after he was sitting on the clock, he's on the clock for a competition. And I was, it was a semi-formal, so we could enter. And I, I said to him eventually, I'm like, did you see what you missed? He's like, yes. I'm like, have you got a reticle in your scope? Yes. He goes, well, make, make the correction, shoot. And then afterwards, get that kestrel out if you want. But now is not the time to be second guessing everything you've ever done in shooting. Now is to be yeah. there at that moment and do that follow-up shot. And ironically, even though he may have not learned that lesson, I learned that lesson today because it was probably something similar that I would do a lot of the time. Yeah, man, we see that a lot. Like nowadays, um, which, which is why we the first course, we just released our online training program. And the first course that we released in that was called the Circle of Components. And all that is, is a, is a compilation of what goes into your precision shooting system. And, and, you know, I did a litmus test by, by putting that out there as an in-person class, a two-day in-person class. Hey, this is just rifle setup. This is just building your gun, learning how it all goes together, how to mount your scope and how to set your eye relief and all of these things that truly contribute to your success at long range precision shooting. And people, people, nobody signed up for it. And, and it's like, and, and I, I knew that that was going to happen. And the reason that I knew that that was going to happen is, you know, we got YouTube university out there, right? You can get on the internet and, and, you know, you can fix anything that goes wrong with YouTube university pretty much, but everybody thinks they got that figured out. But the majority of training courses, I spend the first two days fixing people's setup. I've fixing people's loose scope mounts, fixing people's not leveled reticles and things of this nature that it's a time suck. And these are variables that you can very easily grab a hold of, put your finger on them and remove them from the equation. So that way, when I come away from the firing line and I missed shots, I am not questioning everything else. All I want to know is why did I miss? Because I've got everything else under wraps. Like I know that my shooting system is functioning to its maximum capacity because I put it together. I know now why all of these things have to be a certain way. 
uh, things like your ballistic solver, man, I, I love the Kestrel. I love the technology, but we have to understand that it's only there for a purpose. It's only there for a very small purpose. The rest of the time, once you've proven it to be true and correct, you have to get away from that because it's messing with your brain. Like that dude that you're talking about messing with his Kestrel in the middle of a shooting stage. It's, it's like, he probably saw a shot that missed, refused to believe that it was actually him that caused the miss and wants to blame it on something else other than himself when it's really, you just press the trigger when you shouldn't have, man. That's just the yep. bottom line. So this is part of like, we actually talked about this yesterday in a podcast, like what does it really mean to put your ego aside? And that's part of that. Like his ego was, was like, nope, there's no way that I missed that shot. It was something wrong with this over here. Yep. And it's like, nah, man, it doesn't work that way. When you've got a group of, um, not necessarily new, but a, a group of people in front of you you haven't worked with before, what is the most common kind of issues you see with guys' rifle setups? Yeah, the main thing that we see is just, um, uh, you know, the, people jump on the internet and they, and they say, okay, well, all of these forums say that this is the best piece of gear that I should buy. Be it, well, let, let's first focus on rifle stocks. Um, you know, rifle stocks, there's a lot of things that go into properly fitting a rifle stock to your body. Uh, length of pull being one of them. Now that we've moved into more of um, a shooting position where the rifle is, is more in line with your body and not over here in the shoulder pocket, that changes the ergonomics of the weapon itself and how we need to, to set it up to mate to the body. Um, and then the other thing is like grip, how far away is the trigger from the back, from the, the front strap of the grip, because that's going to dictate how well that you can place your finger on the trigger to properly press it clean straight to the rear um, and have a consistent break. Those things are, you know, that's one of them. And then the other thing is usually, you know, people don't um, put scopes on properly or, or they don't torque the rings properly. A lot of it's um, the base to the action. If there is a, if there, if that is a separate part. So little things like that, or, or sometimes people's action screws have come loose. Mm. Um, you know, if you have a, if you have a solid aluminum chassis and, you know, basically all that thing is, is a giant tuning fork every time you press the trigger. And if those fasteners aren't connected properly with the right torque settings, they're going to come loose because it's nothing but a giant tuning fork. It's metal with vibrations traveling through it every time you press that, press the trigger. So things like that, that, that people don't understand. And then all of a sudden it happens and then they get put down this rabbit hole of why is like all of a sudden that shot just got thrown. Like that's completely crazy. That's out of this. What happened? And it's also troubleshooting, right? It's trying to figure out what's going on because we've all been to the range and had things not go well or the wheels fall off the bus and you're just like, what is happening? Why, why is this happening? And, and so it's also a troubleshooting guide. When the Circular Components Clinic, the, the, the online course came out, you know, we, um, people automatically jumped on it. They're bang, jump on it. And people are like, wow, there's a lot of stuff in here that I didn't even think of. And so, and you look at it and you go, well, you know, that's why we did this. That's why, that's why we wanted to create this program. So that way you could, you could do this on your own time. And the other thing with the online stuff is like in person at a class, I'm limited by time. I'm limited by the amount of time that I can spend with you. And so when it comes to the online stuff, you know, that's five and a half hours worth of content. 
on yeah. building a rifle and mounting a scope and doing all that stuff. And now you can consume that content on your own time and you own it for life and you can refer back to it when, um, you know, when you need to. So that, I think there's a tremendous value in that too. And, you know, when you go, when you go into a rifle class <clears throat> and you got say four days to bring somebody, um, from, you know, a all the way to Z, I can't miss steps. Like I can't mm. have you because what I'm trying to do is, is, is organize and structure the curriculum so that it's systematic and that everything builds on each other so that you come away at the end of that four days, knowing like what you need to do to progress on your own when you're, when you're off on your own conquer, trying to conquer the world with precision rifles. Um, you need to know how to train and how to, how to continue to, to, to train. And so if I have you missing those parts because I'm either going too fast or I'm skipping around because I want you to just think that you're doing cool stuff. I'm not, I mean, yeah, the, the training, you're going to be doing cool stuff, but we're going to be taking you through a process that we know works because we've trained so many shooters in the past and had it mm. and had it work and had the, and had the information solidified. And then at the end through practical application, it shows that it works. Have, have you found with your, your training, and I'd also just as a general question, be interested to know if you've seen a difference between say civilian and military training in this regard as well, that sometimes guys egos get uh, into the play again. And even right down at the beginning, they may miss something or something might not be working right, but because there's the rest of the class there, they're like, I'm going to make it work. It's all good. It's all good, chief. Let's, let's get on to the next thing. But they're kind of still stuck back there because there's just something not gelling. So they don't basically, if, if you don't check your ego right at the beginning of these classes and go, I'm here to learn, yeah. go, they kind of still sit there and don't get as much out of their courses if the, if that they could do otherwise. Yeah. The, uh, so military units are a little different just because a lot of those times those individuals are they're functioning as part of a team or a platoon or a unit. Yeah. And so they all know each other. They all understand each other's, um, uh, weaknesses and strengths. And, um, they, in the military, it's, it's, a situation where um, there's a lot of camaraderie that goes along with that brotherhood chiding, um, you know, and everybody is kind of mellow in that regard with, with, with ego. Right. And mm. they look, I'm here to learn and I'm not only here to learn, but I'm excited to be here to learn. And obviously civilians are, are, they're excited because they're like, if they're paying for a class, they're, they're obviously paying to be there. Um, but at the same time, though, I find civilians actually are more prone to to not asking the questions because they don't want to be that guy. Um, they don't want to be the person that either sounds stupid or or makes um, or asks a question that is stupid or what they perceive to be stupid. And I always start class off by saying, hey, man, for the next X amount of days we're here, there literally is no such thing as a stupid question. The only stupid question is the one that you have and don't ask. That's really stupid because that's what you're here to do. Um, so, so use that specifically. That's what you're here to do is to learn. That. <laughs> exactly. So um, sometimes uh, the civilian side of the house, it's more, it's more prone because there's almost like this. Uh, um, if I don't know this particular topic, then it, then it reflects poorly on me as a, as a knowledgeable shooter or uh, my masculinity or whatever the case mm. may be. 
um, whatever, whatever it is that you got going on inside your head. Um, that's the type of stuff that you got to work out on your, on your own through that whole mindfulness thing that we were already talking about, uh, because it all comes together. It's, it's going to get you, it's going to get you one way or the other, right? It's, it's going to come and it's going to rear its head and bite you somewhere down the road. Uh, if you don't get it in check right away. It's a little bit of a left turn here, but I'm just trying to figure out how to nicely fluidly get over to it. So down here in um, New Zealand anyway, I've basically been locked in a house for the last four weeks. Haven't fired a firearm at all and have kind of tried to get some training and basically what we're talking about is dry fire. So with the understanding that there's probably a few people around the world at the moment who aren't getting out to the shooting ranges and aren't actually able to do any live fire, what is your suggestion for some kind of structure? I saw Phil did a, a video a while ago where he actually recorded a, a, some dry fire training and has some structure to it. Um, how important, I suppose, do you think that structure is versus just lying on the floor making a gun go click for a while? Yeah, so that's, that's a good question. And this comes down to learning how your body actually uh, goes through the learning process and, and how your nervous system functions. Because what we're trying to achieve is, um, is mechanics. When, what dry fire is really all about is dialing in your mechanics. Um, because that's the, that's the part of the, the process that we want to be unconsciously competent. Which means I'm, I'm executing these movements um, with fluidity from my subconscious because I've done them over and over and over. And so a lot of people will use that term called muscle memory and muscle memory is false. Muscles don't have memory. Actually, muscles are springy. Um, they're stretchy. They're elastic. What does have, um, what is happening though, is that you're building, you're building um, a super highway along your nerves, right? Through the electrical impulses that your brain looks, I was trying to explain it to my son this morning. He's learning how to play guitar mm -hmm. and, and he's, he's looking at it and he's like, Oh, did I do this really good? Did I do this really good. And it's just like, dude, you have to build the, you have to build the pathways. Right. And that's really what dry fire is like uh, explaining to him. Okay. Your eye sees where your finger needs to go on that fretboard and on that string. And the reason that you're kind of clunky with it right now is because you haven't built that automatic pathway from your eye through your nervous system to your finger on the guitar. And so once what this practice is doing is it's connecting that and it's actually reinforcing that nerve pathway mm. through a process called myelination. And that's just an insulation of fat and protein that's around your nerve pathway to kind of help that electrical impulse travel faster and more efficiently. So with drive fire, you want to be trained in mechanics and that's it. That is how you address the rifle. That's how you go through your pre-shot process. That's how you go through your post-shot process, things like working the bolt and um, not necessarily not necessarily like uh, going through scenarios, but just doing the repetition over and over and over again. And then you don't have the, the stress of live fire. And a lot of people are like, that's yeah, not stressful. It actually is stressful for your body because you're receiving input, you're receiving stimulus that is foreign to your body yeah. unless you train for it. And so um, dry fire practice should all be about mechanics. And that's what like, that's what Phil illustrated is, you know, um, don't just go through the same process over and over again. So you say, okay, well, 
I'm going to make a completely clean run at this, meaning I've got my rifle laying on the ground. I'm going to go through the entire process of building a position and delivering one well-executed press, meaning it's, it's as close to perfect as you can get it. Hmm. Time that. Say, okay, it takes me 27 seconds right, to get down behind the gun, build a position, acquire a sight picture, go through the pre-shot process, press off, press off a shot. Okay, cool. Now we're going to make that a benchmark and we're going to say, okay, 27 seconds, take five seconds away from that. Say, all right, we're going to we'll put 22 seconds on the clock and I'm going to strive to be able to build my position consistently until I'm comfortably breaking a shot at 22 seconds and potentially with time to spare. Once you go through that and then you're comfortable with that time, then you reevaluate yourself, test yourself again, and maybe you come in at 20 seconds. All right, cool. So now we can, we can raise our bar, we can set another benchmark, and that's where we're going to train at for a while until we can break shots at comfortably at 18 seconds and then so on and so forth. And that's really what dry fire should be doing for us. As I warn people as well, especially because I've, I've done it as well. I taught myself through those neurological pathways. First, this is previous to competition shooting. I was hunting and I, it was my nature. I wanted to practice stuff, I wanted to practice stuff. So I dry fired the process. I had some snap caps, some dummy mm -hmm. rounds, and I would shoot, cycle, shoot, take the magazine out, put those uh, dummy rounds back into the magazine, reload and cycle. So the first time I went out shooting, I had a guide with me and I shot an animal and it dropped and I went through the process. So I actually popped my magazine out and went to start loading the empty brass back into the magazine because that was just my system. And I was now mm -hmm. focused on the moment because it was the first time I dropped an animal, which is its own psychological thing oh, and yeah. everything going on that I went into automatic mode. And yeah, for me, that was putting the empty rounds back into the magazine. And the guy, the thankfully... He's, He's like, what like, are you doing? What, Would you load your you gun again, right please? Now? Yeah, yeah, load your gun, load your gun. <laughs> yeah. And it didn't get back up. It was never going to get back up because, sure. you know. But yeah, it was, it was interesting. So I say to people, yeah, make sure you practice like you want to execute it, not just second hand. The, the one we get, of course, is, and which I'm sure you've seen, is just pulling the bolt up and pushing it back down rather than cycling yeah. the actual bolt. That's a recipe for that's a recipe for problems because you're going to do that. You will do that. If you train for that, you're going to do that when, when uh, you, you're shooting live ammunition. And so, um, you know, once you get the, once you get those mechanics down and you're comfortable with manipulating your rifle the way that you need to, then you can start incorporating scenarios and saying, okay, well, not only am I going to try to build this position in 18 seconds, then I'm also going to incorporate a transition from this target to this target. And then you do that transition. Don't worry about changing a dope. Like I know that you guys can set up um, little, you know, courses of fire with different targets and some people practice dial and dopes and things like that. Those are all those that shouldn't be happening until you've got everything dialed to the point of unconscious competence with regard to manipulation and mechanics. Mm -hmm. Then you can start adding in all of those other things because as we start building on building on knowledge and building on skills, I, you know, um, there's only so much stuff that I can stack. And usually when you test somebody, um, it's going to fall off the top of the pile, so to speak. The pile yeah. can only get so high, right? And then all of a sudden it's going to teeter and it's going to fall off. Well, the highest level 
that you achieved before it fell off. That's your, that's your level of proficiency. That's your level of unconscious competence. And so now we have to work at slowly adding more and more and more to that process while you can still comprehend and execute with competence. You have to be kind to yourself, right? You, you got to be kind to yourself in, in the sense that like, if you're trying to learn a new skill, if you're trying to learn a new process, you simply cannot, ex you simply cannot expect you to pick that up immediately because, and most people do, most people will just be like, what? Ah, uh, hmm. And your mind ends up being your own worst enemy because it's actually preventing you from learning by shutting you off. Yep. You're not being receptive anymore. So you start, you, you got to really truly be, be kind with yourself and say, I am expecting this to happen. I'm expecting these mistakes to occur. So that way you don't, you don't take yourself out of the moment. You, you stay mm -hmm. in, you stay in that. The other thing I've been taking some time to do is just sit down and do that ballistic admin work, which is looking at the ballistics, getting all those things sorted. And it's something leading into this that I've been talking, watching you, watching a lot of guys talk about is this notion of getting the, the ballistic calculation side of it out of the, the shooting cycle into an admin thing back mm -hmm. to the point where there's almost this trend to get those phones away, get the kestrels away and going back to hard written data or data in your head that you just have done it so much that you know. Um, yeah. and it was something I, uh, a guy, I don't know if you've come across him, a guy called Thomas THLR, who's based in Norway. Um, but he does a similar thing. There's a, a, one of his tutorial DVDs that talk about admin and that they're away from the guns, away from everything. It's him with his ballistic calculator and some paper and he starts writing out figures and he says, yep. this is admin time. <clears throat> Do it as admin. Yeah, absolutely, man. That's a, that's a thing that we see quite a bit nowadays with the advent of all this new technology. And now I think that technology obviously is, is uh, it's super, it's beneficial. It's incredibly beneficial for us as precision shooters, because now we have the ability to um, define things to the nth degree of accuracy. Now, what we're doing really is is predicting exactly where our projectile is going to be in time and space. And all that's based on time of flight. It's all based on, you know, whether or not you're using a, a point mass ballistic solver, whether you're using a, um, a radar drive drag curve, it doesn't matter. It, it, it's, it's all doing the same thing, just in a little bit different way. The end result is where is this bullet going to be in time and space with this given set of parameters. Now, there's so many people that think um, that uh, you know little things like a 500 foot density altitude change is gonna is gonna is gonna cause you to miss or man I've heard all kinds of excuses I've heard um, I had one guy missing a 500 yard Ipsic silhouette big big old full size Ipsic mm -hmm. silhouette 500 yards away he's like oh man my barrel must have sped up and I'm like dude okay. And so this is the problem with technology, right? These are the, these are the, uh, these are the byproducts of it because everybody wants to blame it. Everybody wants to blame what's going on as a result of technology not being correct. And it's like, now, if you don't have it correct to begin with, then yeah, you're going to have some serious problems with numbers. Nothing's going to make sense, but that's why we stress so hard to make sure that once you validate that data, once you validate the information and you say, okay, well, this computer is telling me 
what's what's happening and what is happening is reflecting these inputs or these outputs rather that's once that's done it's done you don't need to look at it anymore you take that data from that piece of electronics or technology and you transfer it to a hard card and when you transfer it to a hard card now you're completing the cycle of the learning process you are utilizing visual stimulus by interpreting the numbers that that thing gives you. You're using kinesthetic stimulus by actually writing it down. And then the other, the other way of learning is through, is through um, audio, right? Is through listening. You can do that. It just depends on how you learn, but we're completing that process of learning by, by physically writing it down that way we can look at that data and, and not depend on this technology because what ends up happening is, is your brain looks at that technology and, and you're like, man, there's, there, there's gotta be something wrong inside there that I forgot or that I missed. And, and then that's what's gonna cause you to have the mental meltdown of not staying focused and staying uh, present in what you're actually trying to accomplish. Mm. Well, I done. I put some articles up recently because I had a question. Well, there was a few different ones, and it, it was re- related to like density altitude or angle shooting, all these things mm-hmm. people were talking about. And I said, okay, well, you can do. I'm going to do this for an article, but you guys need to go do it yourself. Don't believe me. Don't listen to me. Go get your calculator out and a cup of coffee, cup of tea at your at your table, and you can do it at home and put in those variables and change them and see how much difference it is. Yeah. And then figure out when it says that it's 0.1 mil or a quarter MOA at the distance you're shooting at, how much physically difference in target is it? And does it matter? Nope, <laughs> because the nope. same thing, like you said, 500 meters on a full size epsic, or even for a deer sized animal, and guys will, the question was, it's like, well, it's going to shift you half an inch or a couple of centimeters. Is that you worth worrying that about? Good. No, (laughs) you can't, you can't. And that's the thing. Like nobody does these things. And guys, for for those of you guys who are listening, you have all of the answers in the palm of your hand. So do the work, sit down, create hypothetical scenarios and say, Mm -hmm. okay, well, what is going to happen if the density altitude shifts 500 feet in in a day? Um, What's going to happen? What, what threshold is it that I have to start worrying? Paying it. Yes. What happens? Or, and it's all related to target size too. So mm-hmm. am I trying to hit a clay pigeon at 800 meters? Okay, well, if I'm trying to hit a clay pigeon at 800 meters, I need to be able to identify what is going on with that. Am I trying to make a first round hit on a clay, clay pigeon at 800 meters? Or am I trying to make a second round impact on a mm-hmm. clay? You know what I'm saying? So there's mm-hmm. a lot of those things that, that come into this because there are so many variables in this game of precision long range shooting that you really have to do it on your own and you can't trust. You got to verify everything. That's another thing I tell my students is I don't care if I've said it. I don't care if that dude over there said it, if it doesn't make sense to you. And if it doesn't, you know, if it doesn't follow, if you can't see the proof of it, then it doesn't mean anything anyways. You probably still have the the dope and the drop for several of your issue rifles and your pretty sitting there pretty close in your memory Mm -hmm. um but modern days for a lot of guys civilian competition shooters we don't have one gun we've got multiple firearms because we're buying the the latest and greatest caliber every single time and then we're always chasing and reloading loads and everything like that 
Um, where is that point where you kind of need to stop and go, well, I need to figure out what this gun is doing before I put it in the safe, never shoot it again and start that project again. Cause I've done it and I don't do it these days because financial reasons, I can't afford to do it. Like I watch some guys just chasing guns, 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 but also I've realized mm. I haven't even sussed out the 308 that I bought years ago, let alone worried about chasing a, a dasher or something else now. So what, yeah. what's your sort of thoughts on that and managing, managing that and managing multiple guns and systems and everything in your head? That's a good, that's a good question. So I, I've, I've got several rifles that I shoot um, for different purposes. You know, I've got, a, I've got a training rifle that I use for my you know, law enforcement and military classes and my own personal training, which is a 308 uh, bolt gun. Um, then I have uh, my competition rifles, a six Creed more, a 6.5 PRC. Um, a 300 wind mag that I use for military courses. And then um, I have a, a seven millimeter short action ultra mag that I use for hunting. So just there, I labeled off five, five rifles, mm. right? So the way that I track all that data is I, I val like I get them zeroed. I figure out what ammunition they like to shoot. If I'm going to shoot factory ammunition or mm -hmm. if it's a hand load, I, fix, I, I get the dialed in, I get the load dialed in and then I leave it. It's done. It's over with. I validate the trajectory, take it out to the range, shoot it at distance, make sure that it's doing what it's supposed to be doing and that the ballistic solver is, is, uh, is tracking. And then once that happens, every single one of those rifles, I sit down and do that admin stuff that we were just talking about. And I write out hard data cards for them. And I take those hard data cards and I put them into a folder uh, or like a little pouch. And that little pouch gets hung on the gun. Okay. So that yeah. way, when it's time to go to the range, I just grab the gun with the ammo and then the data is with it. I don't even usually break open my cell phone or look at my Kestrel for anything other than, you know, double checking a wind speed. Hmm. Um, unless time and opportunity presents itself. Like if I have um, uh, a very technical shot, right? If it's a technical shot and it's a long distance shot with maybe some complex wind patterns or some, some, uh, a small target, then yes, time and opportunity. Yes. I will take the Kestrel out and I will calculate a specific firing solution for those exact parameters because I'm going to try to get all of the variables out of the way mm. so that I can just focus on making a good shot. And then listening to the bullet, watching the bullet just lived in the air that you put it through wherever it goes, whether you caused it to go there or whether you, you caused it to go there by missing one of those, uh, one of those adjustment cues, such as wind, it doesn't matter. What matters is, is where did it land and how do I get it the next shot to hit the target? Yep. So that's how I manage all that data. I put, they're all in individual density altitude, hard cards that, that are in a pouch for each specific rifle. And then, you know, if there's a new temperature condition or new environmental condition, um, I will make it a point to go out to the range and shoot. Um, you know, we got a lot of things out there that, that people hang their hat on like aerodynamic jump and, and all these other earth-based effects. And people give that stuff way, way too much credence, man. It doesn't matter nearly as much as you think it does. Stop mm -hmm. using that as a crutch. You yeah. have to, you got to see it to believe it. And you, if you, if you don't do that, you're doing yourself a disservice and you're putting doubt in your own mind. Yeah. You, you probably didn't miss that shot due to spin drift. It was probably just your wind call. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but there, there also is some finer points to that. So like, oh, as you get yeah. into it, like, okay, so 
um, can't, rifle can't. Hey man, if I'm shooting a 308 and I've got a degree of can't, that's nine inches of drift at a grand. Mm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So nine inches of drift at a grand from one degree of rifle can't. And then let's add in, maybe I missed that wing call by a mile an hour. Now I'm 20 inches off the target. Yeah. By just those two tiny little variables. So it also like there are, there, these are all things that we need to be aware of because it's going to make us a more detail oriented rifle shooter. Um, but these things are there for you to know. And I guess it's kind of hard to say, like everything's got to be pretty damn close to perfect. Right. Yeah. And then we have to be able to look back and say, okay, well, where, where were the imperfections and where did I, where did I leave something out? It's something you talked about, you know, when you're at 500 or when you're at um, 800 and trying to shoot a clay or anything, how do you, or how do you suggest individuals kind of establish their, their baselines and their competency baselines? And I guess my angle overall with this is, is, a, is actually going to tie into hunting is like for hunters who are getting into long range hunting, whatever that might mean to the individual, because long range can be 200 meters or it can be two miles. How do you establish like, what is an ethical shot for me at this distance? Because it's something I've been trying to get across to guys. It's like, well, before you go shooting at 800 meters on a live animal, what is your shooting like? Have you established what an ethical shot is for you? And how, how would you suggest people kind of get themselves to that point? Really hopefully, good question. hopefully with them wanting and knowing that they need to establish that because a lot of people yes. skip that step anyway. hundred percent. So, um, you know, so with long range hunting being the, being the fire thing in, in the world right now, um, people are like, Oh, well I shot a deer at 850 yards. Or then it's like, okay, well, I got to up that. I got to, I got to shoot a deer at 900 yards or whatever it is. Eh, that shit's all nonsense. Right. So there's the people out there that say, well, that's not hunting and blah, blah, blah. Well, hmm, I disagree because if it was, if you were truly a purist, you'd be, you know, you'd be like chasing an elephant with a spear off of a cliff. Right. And, and trying to kill it the way that our ancestors did thousands of years ago. We've progressed, right? We've gotten to the point where we're using tools that give us an enhanced capability. So then brings the point of what is ethical and what Mm -hmm. is responsible. And so the problem is, is that people think that they can buy this giant rifle or not giant rifle, they can buy this giant package and say, okay, well, this cost me $15,000 and I should be able to hit anything that I can see. And it's like, yeah, there's some marketing to that that is very, very misleading um, because it's not that easy. And what I, what I suggest to people is it's, it's basically three factors. You've got the elevation, right? And elevation is basically your drop. That is one of those things that's fairly certain, okay? So we can look at temperature. We can look at altitude. We can look at all the, the atmospheric conditions. And we can say, okay, at 500 meters, I know that if my range is good, my bullet is going to land within this many inches of center, okay, based upon how accurate my rifle is and how accurate I am as a shooter. Then we take it a step further and we say, okay, I can put that bullet inside a 12-inch 12 12 inch square at 500 meters consistently over and over. Now we have wind issues, okay? How much wind is it going to take for you to blow that bullet off of that vital zone from center. Then that's when that ballistic calculator comes into play. We say, okay, 500 meters, 
where, how much, how much wind speed is it going to take me to get that bullet to drift outside that vital zone radius from the center aiming point? Maybe for your, maybe for your cartridge, it's, it's three, four miles an hour at 500 meters. Maybe you're shooting a, you know, a, a, a belted Magnum or maybe a 28 nozzle or something like that, that does really, really well flat shooting cartridge in the wind. And it's three or four miles an hour. Well, you better be able to call the wind to within three or four miles an hour consistently in any environment that you're in to be able to get that bullet to hit the target. So that's how we can start identifying our thresholds of proficiency and competence in all of these skills. So once you get the elevation and the windage dialed, now we have to look at what environment it is that we're going to be hunting in. Am I going to be hunting in a mountain environment? Am I going to be hunting in wide open plains? Am I going to be hunting in the wheat field country or wherever it is that you're at? Now we got to look at those conditions and say, all right, well, what wind conditions am I going to be experiencing for shooting in the mountains, taking cross compartment shots across giant valleys where I can't really tell exactly what the wind's doing in the middle of that valley, which is going to significantly drop your ability or your hit percentage. You have to learn those conditions. You have to sit in those conditions and, and experience them and do your best to shoot in them if you can, which is why we promote people to go to shooting matches because you're able to get that exposure to all of these different conditions, which is building your repertoire, so to speak. Yep. Yep. Cool. All right. So some, some gear questions. I'm sure you knew sure. they were coming. <laughs> Always. <laughs> <laughs> we're talking about the, the gear doesn't matter it's all about, all right but here's some gear questions so um preferences for reticles and do they differ between hunting and competition and if so why or is it one one does all the jobs good question um you know uh, reticles is a, is a topic that everybody loves to get deep into the weeds with and and so my my simp I, I, I look at that very simply and I say it's based off of what your eye can process and what you learned on. So uh, when, when all the grid pattern reticles started to come out um, many years ago, I made a conscious effort to try to shoot them, um, try to shoot them all, as many of them as I could to see, to make sure that my eye was able to track back and forth from, because I was trained on just a straight up center crosshair <laughs> reticle with mill dots and and so my eye consciously goes straight to the center of the reticle. I, I dial, like unless, unless it's a clearly cut scenario where I have, where it's like holding, if you're not holding, you're foolish because you're wasting time. That's a different story. Um, and so I can make that shift from deciding whether or not I'm going to hold or dial. It's, but it definitely is difficult for me to look at a giant Christmas tree reticle and say, uh, pick that out. And it's like, I don't typically do that. I'm going to dial and I'm going to look at the center of the reticle because that's really where the sweet spot in the glass is. And that's where, um, I'm most comfortable, but that's not to say like, I have a CCH reticle on my hunting rifle and I feel as though it's just fine. Um, I've got on the military rifles that I train military guys with, I've got a tremor three because that's what they shoot. Yep. Um, my law enforcement sniper weapon system, I have a, a loophole TMR reticle in that because um, those guys need something extremely simple and they need, to, they need to understand that having that complexity of a reticle with targets as close as they are in the complex environments, 
it's not a good idea to have a really complex reticle in those scenarios. So I'll use all different types of reticles for all different types of things. But I would say for everybody out there, find out what your eye likes the most and, and go that route. And, and pretty much like if you're, if it's a Chevy Ford Dodge type thing with, with scope manufacturers, which it usually ends up being, um, now we've got scope manufacturers that have so many different reticle offerings. You're going to be able to find the type of reticle that your eye resonates most with in whatever brand of scope it is that you choose. Yeah. Well, it was something I, I find and try and people do it backwards. I kind of say, well, look, look at the ret- you as the individual, look at the reticle and see if it makes sense to you and your brain and how you think. And then almost worry about, to an extent, worry about the brand afterwards rather than going, well, I want this brand. What can I get uh, choices for there? Because I still have one thing and it used to be the case. I haven't looked through the modern ones. I'm sure there's new reticles as well, but I always found, for my example, the vortexes that I've run with the finer graduations on it goes two four six eight ten with a five underneath made sense to my brain i looked mm-hmm. through a couple of the night force ones and they had i forget what it was it was two four there was the the they just broke it up differently and every time i looked through it my brain went just doesn't make sense to me makes sense mm-hmm. to other guys i'm sure they look at it and go oh of course that means that 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 that, that. and i know i could train myself through use to to adapt to use for it but i figure from a real simple point if my brain immediately goes that makes sense that doesn't make sense punch the microphone that doesn't make sense i might as well gravitate towards that because my that's how my brain sees and is interpreting it straight away rather than forcing myself from the get-go to have to retrain that yeah absolutely like uh, one of the reasons i like the cch reticle is they broke it down into quarter of a mil and Mm. for me quarter of a mil is it it, i was i was a fabricator Mm. before i before i did this professionally and so i was constantly looking at a tape measure constantly using fractions and so for me, that quarter mil mark makes, makes things faster and easier. Yeah. And chances of me actually having to, to get a wind call exactly at one-tenth of a mil to hit <laughs> yeah. a target, that son of a bitch is going to be small. So yeah. I like the quarter of a mil. I like the quarter mil marks because it's faster. Um, my eye picks it up a lot easier and it makes more sense to me. And I can figure out where I'm at in the reticle, especially if I'm trying to use the hold feature of it. Mm. Now... Um, it, it is, it's true. It's basically like, how do you, how do you interpret it? And, and like, guys, the other thing too, is like, there's a lot of like this, there's a lot of virtue signaling out there with on the forums and stuff about like, well, if you don't like this reticle, you're screwed up. And it's like, dude, mm-hmm. you're not the one shooting the gun. Yeah. That's the guy shooting the rifle. Yep. So it doesn't matter if you like, I, I can't stand the tremor three reticle, but I have to shoot it because the military people that I train shoot it. I think it's horrible. I think it's a terrible reticle, but I, I still, I still shoot it and I can't pass judgment on anybody else that, that, that makes sense to that. Yeah. That's silly. So yeah. just, just roll with what you shoot well and understand it and know what the uh know what the sub tensions are and be familiar with it and be proficient and if you're when you're proficient with it who cares as long as the targets are getting hit it doesn't matter <laughs> what does it matter it was interesting you because i'm sitting here listening to you talk about those quarter mills and my brain immediately tightens up because i grew up with metric and mm-hmm. point one so anything when we start talking quarter three quarter my brain just just like yeah. what do you what what, what? but so that then comes down to the education system we grew up in. And we've had a whole lifetime of, of thinking that particular way. I, 
there is benefits in certain things, but at the same time, you don't necessarily want guys, especially if they're hunting and they're not doing this professionally, or they're not behind these things every single day to turn yeah. around and go, well, you just need to change the way that you think from school, from school time, from yeah. this method to this method, because this is what we do. This is what the cool cats are doing. It's like, well, no, if you're out hunting a couple of times a year, if you understand what that is, it's going to work. Don't, don't adjust to do that. Don't change. But, yeah, man. But yeah, as soon as, as soon as I get um, uh, the, the, the fractions come in my my brain just panics because it's like give me point one point seven yeah. whatever it is but that's the way I grew up so indeed um, one thing that came out is something I've been um, pondering myself so this is a, a question you know this is the reason I get you guys online so I can ask these questions um, I I set up rifles for guys and sometimes it's literally they don't for different reasons they're the hunter who goes out a couple of times a year and they're not going to go out and spend days at the range setting their rifles up. So they want a rig that is set up that they can go and hunt for that one excursion they get. Apart from the fact I still suggest you guys, you still need to go out and practice for ethical reasons. For, for, but whatever it is, your choice, this is what you're going to do. So it comes down to zeroing rifles. And I've seen the arguments for both methodologies. One, putting it into a ransom rest and getting that mechanical zero, which is the true zero of the gun, versus getting a zero of a gun the way that it's going to be shot. And I understand that because I'm left-handed, I'm going to be shooting slightly, I'm putting a teeny little bit of myself into each gun that I set up. But what's your thoughts on that, setting up that way versus putting the thing into, strapping it down into a, a rest, removing all of that, giving the mechanical zero, and then giving it back to the guy and saying, this is the true zero of the gun. There is no other zero of the gun. You need to adapt to around that. It's interesting. Uh, this is a question that's starting to get pondered a lot by the competitive shooting space because um, some people are starting to discover that the different pressures that they put into um, the rifle result in different point of impacts. And the reason for that is mechanics. It's, uh, it's physics. It's, it's, an, it's called the angle of jump. And so if you put that rifle into a ransom rest, right, and you just lock it all down, now the, the weight of that rest depending on whether you're going to let the rifle recoil attached to the rest and like let it move, or if you're literally going to bolt that thing down to the table or down to the concrete bench and strap that rifle to it and not allow it to move, you will have a different point of impact shift because the rifle is moving. Okay. So if we stop the rifle from moving, we are going to get ourselves a false positive of where the bullets are actually going to print because they're leaving the muzzle at a certain point in that recoil process. Okay. So barrel vibrations are what they are. And those barrel vibrations are going to occur as a result of getting of, of the chamber pressure being as a result of the rifle being fired. Now, the other part of that is when that force comes rearward, where's it all going and where's it getting transmitted to. And so what I tell people is you have to zero that rifle in the most consistent condition that you possibly can regarding what its intended use is. So like a bench rest guy or an F class shooter is obviously they can get away with some different, they can get away with that because that rifle is going to be set exactly in the same way each and every time it's shot. So you can get a bench rest rifle zeroed off the bench because it's always going to be shot that way. Mm. Whereas like a practical rifle you have to make sure that you're replicating that recoil impulse the same way over and 
and over again. And I would encourage you guys that are listening who don't believe me or are skeptical, do the test yourself. Hmm. Take the rifle to the range, shoot it at 100 yards on paper, and figure out where the point of impact shift is based upon different positions that you shoot from, different loads that you put into the bipods, different substrates that you shoot the bipods off of, things of that nature, because that all affects the, the, the angle of jump that the rifle has throughout the process of recoil. How do I and can I figure out where my shooting begins and ends and where the zero of the rifle begins and ends? And I guess we've got this question of, I tell people your zero is going to change because as you shoot and change your fundamentals and hopefully improve on them, your zero will probably change. But have you found a way or a methodology of establish, establishing that, that baseline of the rifle and then going, because I watch guys shoot and they're like, I'm always pulling left. And I always kind of think, well, if you can't, if you don't have someone over your shoulder going, well, you're pulling left because of this, how do you tell whether you're pulling left or your gun is zeroed left or, or right or what's it's a convoluted question, but that's my good. thinking sort of. That's yeah. good. It, um, so that comes down to uh, what kind of fundamental reinforcing drills are you shooting to establish where your point of consistency is. Yep. So okay. yep. um, we're, we're about to release uh, the Fundamentals of Marksmanship online course uh, on the tail of the circle of components. And we're actually just getting through filming the rest of the drills, the fundamental drills. And one of those drills is a consistency drill. And it involves breaking the position after every single shot that you fire. And the reason that we do that is it's to get you to understand that if I change this in my position, this is then the result. Mm. And so we, it doesn't matter where the rifle groups as long as it groups. If we're getting a group, then, then, we, can, then we can surmise that that is the zero. And so what, what I typically do with students is I don't have them slip their turrets until the, the beginning of day two. And the reason that we do that is all of day one is nothing but fundamentals, getting the guns zeroed, making sure that the, that the students are fundamentally sound as they learn these new techniques. And then we get a rough zero. And then I tell the students, don't chase your zero. Don't try to get it exactly where the point of aim is. That's a, it's futile at this point in time because it's going to change. It's going to walk around as you get more comfortable behind the gun. You decide what inputs the gun likes and what it doesn't like. This is a familiarization process. And once we get that familiarization process done and we're starting to see consistency, now we can start directing that zero because that's all we're doing with the rifle scope is we're moving the zero around based upon where the gun shoots and where we shoot. So once we establish that consistency, then we can start locking down that zero and, and getting familiar with it and saying, okay, well, if I put this input into the gun, where is the point of impact going to go? If I put this impact input into the gun, where is the point of impact going to go? And that's really what we're trying to do with the fundamental drills is, is give you the confidence that, okay, the gun is shooting here. Now that is our baseline. And then from there, we can start to build and then slip turrets and say, okay, pretty much this is where my zero is going to live. And then check your zero often, check it often. Make sure that's doing, that the gun's doing what, you, what it's supposed to be doing because your zero is also, if you have errors in your zero, that's obviously going to translate into your, into your, uh, uh, your, your firing solutions for longer shots. So what you're basically telling me is I need to shoot more and test everything myself. <laughs> Always. Yeah, man. You can't take anything for granted. Damn you know, it. I know 
There's I'm, I'm trying to get the secret sauce so I don't have to shoot as much and can shoot great. It's tough, dude. It's tough, man, <laughs> because you know, there's a lot of companies out there that, that try to send rifles out with, um, as an example, with scopes set predetermined. Mm. It's like, dude, you can't do that. You, mm. you cannot do that. Uh, and if you want to get really, truly a custom fit behind your rifle, that thing has to be fit to you. And it has to like, and a lot of, we see it all the time. Like I'll put somebody into a proper shooting position and their eye relief all of a sudden is way too, way too, uh, way too generous. And they're like, I can't, I can't get yeah. rid of the shadows. Well, then we got to move your scope back, man, mm. because that's the right way to do this. You got to get yourself fitted to the gun first. And then we put the optic on the rifle where it needs to be for your particular body style and your shooting position. Mm. Well, it's something I've noticed as I've sort of been following what you've been talking about is straightening, getting that rifle more to your center line that mm -hmm. from out here, which is how I was traditionally taught to in here. Well, yeah, now my whole scope is, is no longer where it needs to be. Yes. I've had to shift the whole thing. Yep. And then you realize that now you need to move my rings and base and everything. So I, I really like that notion that you talk about of, taking the scope off, get that gun, especially with the chassis with a million variables of adjustment, get yeah. all that sorted before you even think of putting the actual optics on there. Yeah, man. Yeah. Take that scope off, put it on the table, get, you know, be, what's going to happen is you're going to start to sacrifice a good shooting position uh, to mm. see through the scope. Yeah. And so take that thing off there, get comfortable on that rifle first, make sure that everything, all of your, all of your factors common to all shooting positions are dialed in then we put the scope on there and then set the scope in the proper position for eye relief that you're comfortable and that you can manage in all the different shooting positions. Well, it, it reminds me going all the way back to the beginning of that, um, the Magpul video. One thing I still tell people or I repeat out of it that I heard was, I think it was Todd talking about the guys trying to alpha their way through a rifle setup or alpha their way through a shot. You know, that whole alpha male, I can make this work. I can, it'll good enough. I can make it work. It's like, whoa, stop, 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 stop. Something's not right. Let's just stop, accept and understand it's right. And the alpha male thing to do is actually correct the situation so we can do even better. It's not alphaing our way through it. Yeah, for sure. That's, we see that often. And that's one of the reasons that we do that consistency check drill, breaking your position after every shot. Yeah. Because most people, when they're trying to shoot a group, um, you know, they, they base their, they base their ability to shoot off of like this, off of group size. I suck at shooting groups at a hundred yards. I'm not good at it at all. Um, some people are really good at it. Um, but you, you have to break that mentality by saying every single shot is its own, right? And if it doesn't feel right, abort the process, go back, make sure that it is right because then you're going to be able to learn more from the results. Mm. Awesome. All right. So talking about your, your course, I've seen you releasing. So the, the, the first course is now out and available guys are um, getting into there and signing up and the second one's coming through. Mm -hmm. They are all going to sit sort of on top of each other. It's a, like we were talking, I asked you earlier about sort of the content of that first one. Get yep. that first and so out of a second one, go to the third one. Exactly. So what we're trying to do is change, like there's a lot of online training that's offered out there right now. And, and, and what we're trying to do is create a pathway for the student. We're trying to create a, um, a comprehensive learning experience because all of our courses um, are going to have not only the visual stuff from the videos, but we also have the ability to have uh, a downloadable checklist or student outline where it's applicable that the student can download that, print it off or 
make a checklist card out of it, take it to the range with them mm. for reference. So it's a guide. And, and so the circle of components is first, uh, there, we have two free courses that are rifle safety and rifle cleaning. And then we have the first paid course, which is a circle of components. And then the next one is going to be fundamentals of marksmanship. Uh, building on that, the next one after fundamentals is going to be, I'm fairly certain I'm going to call it long range shooting 101. And that's where we're going to say, okay, you know how to put your rifle together. Now you know how to shoot it consistently. Now long range 101, we're going to continue with the progression. We're going to teach you the foundations and the fundamentals of long range shooting. And then the eventual goal is to be able to have curriculum uh, for each of our in-person courses as an online package, because obviously there's a for entry, right? To come to a training course and that's time, money. Most students are paying up to three times the cost of tuition just yeah. to be there. Now, nothing substitutes in-person coaching. Nothing substitutes the, that, that interaction with your teacher but what we're trying to do is, is, is break that barrier of entry and, and do something that is literally the next best thing to being there. We're going to be releasing a monthly subscription-based service for specific to military and law enforcement customers um, just to be able to give those guys um, some bite-sized pieces of content that'll give them some, some uh, it'll, be, it'll include lecture on some leadership and some philosophy, some training philosophy, and then we're also going to be including an hour worth of skills, um, whether that be like, uh, this is, uh, this is some ideas that you can incorporate into your next training session, or this is something specific like shooting through glass and barriers or something to that effect. And, mm. and, um, you know, um, I'm, I, I think that'll eventually morph into doing a civilian online subscription version. But at this point in time, I think we're going to stick with the online training courses for that. And then, yeah do something a little different for the for the military and LE guys cool so uh i will obviously put links in as they go but where do people go to find these courses uh so you can go to uh right now we have um a landing page for the courses and uh it's it's a uh, the schoolhouse and you're going to find that link at moderndaysniper.com and you can also find that link in all of my social media profiles um you go to my instagram which is modern day sniper or uh, kalen uh, 8541 and you can go in there and there's a like a, there's a link in the profile and that'll that'll send you to wherever it is that you want to go um, the, uh, I would, I would highly recommend that you guys get, uh, get signed up on our email list because that's what we're starting to use primarily to start sending information out with our newsletter. Um, it's been a while, um, because, you know, building this from the ground up has been an, an incredible experience. It's been awesome learning. Um, and now we're just starting to get our newsletters put together and we're going to have monthly newsletters going out. So go over to the modern day sniper website, get signed up for the email list. And that way, um, Anything that's new coming out or new schedule, new online courses is all going to go out via email too. Yep. And so, and including in that monthly newsletter. So that's where you can find us. And I mean, obviously if people, people are listening to this as a podcast or online as well, you've got your own podcast and it was, it was one of the challenges with me trying to find some questions that you haven't already covered in that quite extensive <laughs> podcast, which is why we didn't go so much into the history of everything. Cause you've got, a couple of podcasts on your specific history, Phil's history and the, the whole thing of that as well. So I encourage guys, hopefully, if for some reason this is the first time they've, they've heard from you or seen you, that they go over to that Modern Day Sniper podcast as well because 
there's just such a wealth of information in there. And I, I like the fact that it switches between specific gun stuff, bigger ideas of the mindfulness and thinking of it. And then you're adding in these other bits and pieces in regards to leadership. There's a, I haven't watched it yet, but I've, I'm hearing great feedback about the reloading podcast that um, you've done as well. That was so, hugely popular. Scott yep. came on board and, and dropped some big time knowledge bombs mm. and, and uh, really upset people's train of thought on, on uh, hand loading processes. And so that's really what we're trying to do, man, is just is present information in the most, uh, in the most digestible format we can and just really try to resonate with our listeners and, and create inspiration. That's, that's really what it, what it, what it is. It's just creating inspiration. Well, there was a great, there was a great meme image that came up a while ago and it was sort of a guy saying, Oh, well, there's a new modern day sniper podcast come up. I better go grab my rifle and see what I messed up with uh, today, you know? (laughs) And, but instead of just, instead of you guys going, it's dogma, you do it this way rather than this way. You provide that thought as to this is why we do that way. And you lead people to go, oh yeah, actually that's probably a better way of doing stuff. So that's what I yeah. hope I do. And it's, I love seeing in, in people rather than going step one, step two, you do this, do you do this, do you do this? It's like, no, this is why we do this. This is why. And we're not trying to sell a product either. You know, we're not trying to, we're not trying to sell a hard product. We're trying to sell, um, we're just trying to connect with you. We're just trying to connect with you and give you information. Now, obviously there's a value in that and, and there's a cost associated with that on some levels, but um, it's just, we try to be as, as uh, unbiased as possible. Yeah. And so that way it's, it's, it's a, uh, it's unique for all. Well, Caleb, awesome. Thank you very much for your time. I would love to take up more of your time because I could probably ask you questions all day long because it's a rare opportunity for me to do this stuff. But um, we've, we're both busy and I, I need some more coffee, that's for sure as well. So <laughs> it's super um, early where you're at. Eh? It's super early over here and I'm going to go upstairs, make coffee and probably that, be greeted by a four and a five-year-old. So it's not like I can go get another nap anyway. So, so that's all good. SOP. Yeah. So that's awesome, man. So thank I, you I appreciate much. you having me on. Thank you so much for having me on. Um, this was a, this was a lot of fun. I enjoy these, these more conversational tone podcasts more than anything. So I appreciate your time and, uh, I'm looking forward to having another one of these in the future.